would you guys give him a warm welcome? Pastor DJ. Yeah, well, it is a privilege to, uh, to hang out with you guys. If you can maybe turn the volume down a hair, because, you know, when I start shouting up in here, I don't want to scare the people away. Um, but it's an honor to share with you, to be with you, and just to dive into God's Word together. And uh, uh, as part of this God-centered living series and God-centered relationships. Um, and, you know, Dan told me that when he introduced me, he was going to be like, kind of explain this whole thing about, you know, if you're feeling whatever, just something in your heart touched, you know, go find a pastor. And he's like, and now, speaking of offending people, DJ Smith. But <laughs> thankfully, you know, he didn't quite put it that way. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> hey, if you have missed out on some of these series, man, we are laying a foundation this year about building a God-centered life. And I think it's awesome. Um, you know, God actually is the center of the universe. Whether we place him there or not. He actually already is there. Um, but I think it's amazing how when we recognize that he's there, when we recognize that he is the center, um, we begin to participate in his life. When we begin to align ourselves around him and start to recognize, oh, he's the sun and we're the planets and we're revolving around him. Incredible life comes from that. Wisdom, peace, joy, um, uh, and just, just true blessing from him. And so I just hope that you're already beginning to see that happen uh, in your life as you're putting this into practice. Uh, we're using 2 Timothy 2.22 as kind of a, a filter through which we're looking at everything that we're talking about in this series. So every topic, uh, like relationships right now, we're looking at that where it says, hey, flee the, the evil desires of youth and pursue, uh, along with those who call on God out of a pure heart, uh, pursue righteousness, faith, um, love and peace. And we've been talking about the idea of how when we pursue righteousness, it's just finding out what God has to say about a given topic, right? That's just righteousness, man. We want to be in right relationship with him. And then we're actually pressing in to hear what he wants us personally to apply, right? How he wants to speak to us. And we're responding in faith and in obedience to his voice and his word, right? Which is faith. And then we're moving into putting that into practice, which is love. And then the result of all those things is that we're actually experiencing his peace, his wholeness and shalom. Just that place of his presence, his lordship, his goodness is, is becoming evident. I'm telling you what, God wants you to be experiencing him in that way, to be having his fullness. And so I'm excited about it. Um, this week, though, I want to talk about two weapons that God has given us to avoid becoming isolated and ambushed. Now, if I were to ask a Bible nerd in the room, any Bible nerds in the room, let me see. Don't raise your hand because I'd be prideful, but you know, you know who you are. Okay. If I were to ask you, where in the book of Ephesians is the armor of God? Where might you say? What? I'm going to give you a hint. It's either one, two, three, four, five, or six. Give me a chapter. Very good. Ephesians chapter six, the armor of God, you know, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, sword of the spirit, you know, sandals of the preparation of the gospel of peace. Don't tell me why we're going to battle in sandals, but anyway, that's what it says. Okay. Uh, let's call it boots. Anyway, but I believe that God snuck in a couple of weapons in chapter four. He's sneaky like that. He can be. So we're going to look at two additional weapons that God is giving us to avoid becoming isolated. But I'm going to, before we get there, I want to make two statements. If you don't like, well, we're not going to go there quite yet. If you don't like the statement that I make, I want you to boo and hiss. Are you ready? You, you, you wanted to do that for pastors all of your life. Come on, don't deny it. Okay, so this is your chance to boo and hiss a pastor. Are you ready? I'm going to say, Satan hates you and has a plan to isolate you and defeat you. Ooh, hiss. Okay, I heard more boos and hisses, but yeah, we, yeah, that's not good news. Now, if you like this statement, I want you to cheer and clap and rejoice. Are you ready? But our God is smarter than Satan, already knew beforehand what he was going to try, and actually has prepared weapons that are going to clobber him and bring us into victory and community. Woo! All right. That's good news, isn't it? It really is good news. And I'm telling you what, um, uh, I just can't wait to jump into these two weapons that God has given us. So let's look right now, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And let's read that together because I believe uh, that the first one is found in here. It says this, Paul is writing, he's in prison, uh, and he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit 
through the bond of peace. Is there another slide? Through the bond of peace. Uh, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, did you catch, was there kind of an emphasis in what Paul was saying there? Is there a word that kept being repeated over and over? One. Man, there is one Father, one faith, one baptism, one body, right? He is trying to get through to us and to the people, obviously, God's followers in Ephesus, that, man, this is important, that there, we are part of this thing together, that we're in something together that he's wanting to build. And so obviously it makes sense then if the enemy knows that, that he would be like, oh, I don't want that to happen. How can I isolate? And so we find the enemy working double time. I don't know if you tell me if you've seen this in your life, working double time to try to pull us away from each other, isolate us so that he can then ambush us. And I bet if you had a chance to think about it, there'd be situations in your life, just like I know in my life, where I'm like, man, if I hadn't been in isolation, if I had been living in community, if I had had maybe other men in my life, or you know, other, if you're a woman, other men, woman or whatever in your life, or been just walking in, in godly relationships, I bet the enemy wouldn't have been able to win that battle. You know? But the enemy knows, man, if he can isolate us, he can pounce on us, he can ambush us. But God, like I said, is smarter. And I believe the first weapon that God wants us to understand and to practice, if we're going to resist the enemy's approach to tear us apart, and we're truly going to press into community together and experience God's victory, is forbearing. Forbearing. In that passage, he said, bear with one another. That word can also be called forbear. Now, it has nothing to do with bears, you know, care bears, any other kind of bears. Just put that out of your mind completely. Don't even think about care bears right now. Stop it. Okay. Forbearing. And I believe that that is God's weapon for when people rub us the wrong way. People rub us the wrong way and kind of uh, maybe they go against our way. Have you ever experienced that in the body of Christ? Somebody rubbed you the wrong way? Somebody done something not the way you would do it? Okay. It's very real. It happens. Not in this church per se, but I've heard of other churches, even here in Castle Rock, where it's happening right now, this very moment. But, <laughs> but that word, that word uh, means that it's, it's anexomai in the Greek, and it means this, endure, bear with, have patience with, suffer, ooh, don't like that one, <laughs> admit, like accept into the group, admit, persist, and then it goes into explaining it. It says this. It means, it comes from two words that when put together mean still, still bearing up. When we're bearing up like some weight or something, if you're putting a tent up and you're like, all right, I'm holding it up. Get the stakes together. Okay, ready? I'm going to let go now. You know, it's like, whoops, somebody didn't do something right. Okay, we're bearing up something, right? It says still bearing up even after going through the needed sequence or course of action. So even when you've gone through a process that should let it stand by itself, you find yourself still holding something up. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Is that your experience maybe in your marriage sometimes? Maybe with your kids or with your siblings sometimes or with a friend or you're like, man, I find myself like, I feel like I'm constantly holding some stuff up here. Well, that is exactly forbear. God is like, oh, yeah, that's part of my plan. <laughs> but don't worry, that's good news. <laughs> so um, now I want to ask you guys, what are some things that make it difficult for us to get along in the body of Christ? Why is it difficult to forbear one another? What do you think? What was that? Okay, pride. How does pride keep us from forbearing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't be embarrassed, but, you know, if you... Yeah. Okay. You're like, hey, my way is right, maybe, if I'm more prideful than you, and it's hard to, yep, okay. Somebody else, what makes it difficult to forbear? They don't think the way I think. And obviously the way that I think is the way to think. It is what should happen. Okay, what else? Oh, yeah, in the sound booth, Jared. Okay, we assume we understand 
what they're thinking, but maybe we don't. Mm-hmm. It's, almost like, it's almost like a playground got combined. All, like four different groups of kids that were playing separate games all got lumped together into a playground. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever been in that playground? And there's like football going one direction and there's kids playing basketball going a different direction and then there's like kids, you know, playing tag in the middle of it all and then there's like, and nobody necessarily knows what anybody else is doing but it's easy to assume like you're playing this game. Why are you touching the ball with your hands? Don't be doing that. You know, that's not, but all of a sudden, you know, you don't know they're playing some different game, right? And sometimes it's like that where we're all coming from different places and it's like, man, what in the world would make them do that? Why do they do that? And it's difficult to forbear. Let me tell you something else. What about personalities? Does that make it difficult to forbear? Yes, Janelle? Yeah, I, I think the way that God made us, the way God wired us, the way we uniquely see the world through our personality can make it difficult sometimes, can cause that rub of somebody else. What about uh, our upbringing? The way our family taught us. Maybe in your family you were like, don't ever question authority. Don't ever disrespect. You know, you eat what's put in front of you. But maybe in the other family, it's like, hey, you make sure that you eat healthy. And if there's, you know, a bunch of carbs put on your plate, you push those aside. I mean, you know, I don't know, whatever. But we're raised in different ways, maybe different culture. What about different culture? I don't know. I think I told you guys one time that everything went well in our Latino church plant with a lot of Central American and, 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 and Mexican uh, immigrants in, in the Denver area uh, until we decided to put on a, a water baptism. So they were all coming to church faithfully every week in our church plant back in the early 2000s. And we were like, we're going to have a water baptism, kind of symbolizing like, okay, you're technically no longer a Roman Catholic. Now you're, you know, something different. And they were like, okay, yes, we're going to be there. Yes, absolutely. We got there. We did it at Curtis Park. If you know where that is, just north of the downtown area. And nobody showed up. (laughs) We were like, well, okay. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Our whole church was like 27 people at the time. But still, you know, from 27 to zero, it still felt like, whoa, that was a drop. You know what I mean? I don't care what church planner you are. That's still a drop. And, and the funny thing is the culture that was like, they wouldn't tell you to your face. They wouldn't disrespect you. That was disrespect in their mind to say, no, we're not, we're not quite ready to do that. We need some more time to process this. They just would be like, yes, yes. We're going to, yeah, that's a great idea. Water baptisms. And then, <laughs> so anyway, I don't know whatever happened with that, but I think we sort of postponed the water baptisms indefinitely. We're like, the Lord will provide in his time. But all I'd say, different culture, different upbringing, different family. All of those things can cause rubs in the body of Christ, right? In our relationships and keep us from, oh man, that just bugs me. Oh, it gets under my skin. Why do they think that way? Why do they talk that way? Why do they, why do, they do that way? It's wrong. I want to share one other one with you. Is that really my time? because I feel like I've been talking for a lot longer than... If I've only been talking five minutes, praise God. Woo! That's the real time. That's the, oh, that's the real time. <laughs> that just saved all of you guys, because this could have been really, really different. I'm like, it's all, I've only been talking for six minutes and 30 seconds. Everybody's starting to leave. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dan, for clarifying that. <laughs> Dan is a good pastor, guys. He loves, he loves his flock. <laughs> All right. I want to tell you guys one other thing. Now, um, this is opinion, okay? Now, we've, we've tried to be honest when we're sharing something that's not like the Bible says, God says. When something is something that's an opinion of one of us as leaders, we want to be honest. We want to be upfront. Something you can take, you can chew on, you can spit it out if you don't like it. You can reject it and go, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Or you can go, wow, maybe there's some truth in that. Or maybe God shows you, wow, this is valuable. I think it is valuable. That's why I'm going to share it. Uh, but I submit that uh, as, as, as the, uh, the context under which I share this. Cammie and I went to a conference before opening this campus 10 years ago, 10 and a half years ago. Uh, and uh, at that conference in Seattle, the pastor, who is the pastor of a multi-site, big, huge church in Seattle, happened to mention something in passing. He was like, oh, yeah, you know, we put our prophets, our priests, our kings in the right places, in the parking lot ministries, or in small group leadership, or different positions and roles. And then he just moved right along and, didn't, and went on with a different topic. And I was like, have you ever been in that moment when it's just like, stop the train, emergency lever. We're stopping this thing. I didn't hear anything that was said for the rest of the convention. I felt like that was the most significant thing 
that explains relationships in the body of Christ that I'd ever heard in all of my life. And I'm a missionary kid. I had a drug problem growing up, you know, got drugged to church on Sunday morning, drugged to church on Sunday night, <laughs> drugged to church on Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday, you know. Bad pastor joke. Okay. But the point being, I really was like, oh my gosh, that is, blew my mind because this guy kind of, I started researching online after we got back and everything. And he said, man, you know, prophets, priests, and kings, those three types of leadership were in Israel back in the Old Testament, right? And God's people, they were present in the life of Jesus. Jesus was one that as a prophet, uh, he declared, he sought to understand and to declare the word of, of God, right? To the truths of God. As a, as a priest, he loved the people. He shepherded them. He healed them. He built community. He, he represented them to the Father. And then as a king, man, he organized. He sent them out two by two. He had a plan to, to train his apostles, to send them out with authority, to have them heal the sick, to come back and teach and train them some more. He'd go on retreats with them and pour into them. And he had a very, very deliberate plan as a king to raise up a team of people that would take this thing. And 2,000 years later, we'd be standing here worshiping God, discipled with the word of God, with the Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, so all three were present in Jesus, but here's where the opinion comes in. Those two things were facts, but now the opinion is those three kinds of filters still exist in the church today, if you really think about it. If you go to any church, or let's say a new person comes into a church, and let's say they're already a believer, right? If a prophet comes into a church, they're going to be like, okay, so where's the Bible studies? Is there prayer meetings in this church? How do we, okay, is there, how do we learn the Greek and the Hebrew? Where does it, you know, how do we get to really the meat? You know, we don't want the milk. We want the meat. What is God saying? How do we really dig in? Go deep. That's probably your prophet kind of filter people, right? And then what about the priests? They're coming in like, hey, is there an ice cream social? Does this church have a Facebook page? I like to interact and click like on people and, you know, share my stuff. This is what I'm eating for dinner. You know, those are probably more your priestly kind of people, right? Community builders and minglers and all that. And then you got your kings. Like, well, okay, now how are the finances run here? Are we supporting any orphanages? What are we doing around the world? What actually is getting done in the work of the kingdom, right? Because the kings are overseeing the processes and the systems and the structures that actually make the kingdom of heaven happen. They're the doers, they're the organizers that actually, and, and all three of them are incredibly beautiful. Again, this is just my opinion and this other pastor's opinion that these still exist in the church, but I think it kind of begins to explain a lot of times because what does the enemy do? He tries to get in there and, and, and attack through suspicion because he doesn't want what? The body coming together, unity, right? We just read in Ephesians 4, man, there's one body, one father, one faith, one baptism. Man, when all three of those come together, watch out, enemy, because it's going to be a church that is hearing the word of God from people that passionately are pursuing his presence and his truth. It's going to be a church where people are growing to love each other and engage with each other in community because those priests are just going nuts. And then it's going to be a church that's well-organized, that's effective, that's efficient because it's, man, it's discovering the systems, the strategies, the timelines, the budgets to make the kingdom of God reality in our world. Can I tell you guys something? When we came back from that conference and we opened this particular campus at Castle Rock, I felt like the Lord told me the church that hears the voice of the prophet, the priest, and the king is going to be one that is healthy and one that I'm moving in. And I believe that we're seeing that happen. I believe we're totally seeing that happen. We have lead, senior lead pastors that totally represent all three of those passions and that want to pursue God and hear his leadership and discern his leadership in all three of those ways. And it's so awesome. But what does the enemy do? He obviously is like, I don't want that. So he tries to get the prophets to be like, those priests are so shallow. They just laugh all the time. And I saw one of them having a beer with another one. <sighs> They're so sinful. And then the priests are like, those kings, boring. Oh, man, plans and structures and timelines. Oh, all they care about is the offering count and the number. Oh, my gosh. And whether we can knock down a wall. You know, and then, you know, the kings are like, oh, my goodness. The prophets are, I saw one of them clucking like a chicken, you know, at an intercessory meeting. Don't know what that was all about. I'm out of here. What does the enemy do? He tries to build suspicion. Yeah, I, again, I'm not denying that there's abuse of any of those three, right? People go too far. Please hear me. I'm not defending everything that's done on, in the name of any of those. But, but the idea is the enemy tries to get in there and tries to make us think again. And so forbearing is when God is saying, man, it's part of my plan for you to come together. If you will learn to use the weapon of forbearing, it means getting along, putting up with a different translation. It's putting up with each other. Now, there's two elements to forbearing. One of them is, and I'm not going to say 
shut up, because I know a lot of people are offended by that. So I'm saying shutting up, because it's totally different. So, <laughs> one way is shutting up. One way to forbear, right? And, and we read in Ephesians 4, 2 and 3, listen to this. We read it earlier. Uh, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So that seems like, at least implied, is like, man, there's going to be times when I want to say something, and maybe I don't, right? I'm shutting up. I'm, I'm, I'm using self-control of the Holy Spirit to not necessarily jump on someone else who might be from a different personality, culture, and or prophet, priest, king, lens, filter than me. And I'm going to try to go, somebody said it, understand them, right? See maybe what their heart is behind that. What, hey, this is part of Jesus's, that helped me when I come in. Oh man, instead of judging people, now I go, oh, that's the prophet heart coming through. Oh, that's God's kingly heart coming through. We're getting organized up in here. Oh, that's the priestly heart coming through. Oh, they're here 10 minutes late. Why? Because they sat and talked to their neighbor on the way to the meeting, you know? Why? Because they were representing the love of Jesus in their community. You know, that's what priests do. So all I say, all of them do that, but you know what I'm saying, the priests find those ways to do that. So um, all that to say, shutting up is one way sometimes. And that's, maybe we've already understood that. But here's another way that forbearing takes uh, place. And that is speaking up. Because even in this chapter four of Philippians, excuse me, Ephesians, later on in that passage, it says in, uh, you can pull it up in verses 14 through 16, uh, Paul is speaking again. He says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their uh, deceitful scheming. Instead, what does it say next? Say it out loud. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Wow. So speaking up can be a part of forbearing. Here's why. What happens when we don't understand that part of loving each other and being part of one body together is actually learning to communicate truthfully and lovingly? What happens when we don't do that? Over time, some people are like, peace out, peace out, peace out. I don't need to put up with that, but I don't want to confront it, so I'll just, I'll just won't rock the boat. Lie of the enemy. The enemy church has robbed us blind. The enemy has robbed us blind of God's blessings in our life, of our identity, who we are, of our spiritual gifts, of our strengths, of how we fit in this world, of how we, how we can bless other people around us who need what's in us, and vice versa, how God wants to enrich our lives through the lives of others. The enemy has robbed us blind through that lie. Oh, I'll just be humble and... I just won't say anything, so we'll just eventually lose interest. Why? Because that frustration, that rub gets too intense. Church, God is saying, no, don't let the enemy rob you anymore. Forbear by speaking up can be a way of hashing it out and duking it out, but with the purpose of staying together in one body. Does that make sense? It's like in our marriage. Sometimes it's, it just gets a little ugly or a little uncomfortable or a little whatever. But if the point is like, let's work through this. Let's come together. It's awkward. It's embarrassing. It's, oh, I don't know. I'd rather just click unfriend. Bye-bye, you know. <laughs> we have such power at our fingertips through the miracle of social media. By the way, it's totally off topic, but I think I was the one who brought Facebook into Jubilee Fellowship Church. Dan argues with me, but I seriously remember the day and the hour that I was in the office at Lone Tree, <laughs> had discovered Facebook, and I was like, because guess one of the three, I am primarily prophet, priest, or king. Hmm? Priest, yes. And so I was like, this is a priestly gift from heaven. God has finally answered our prayers. We can know each other's business, post each other's pictures, stalk each other. This is a priest dream. All the kings are like, they're all on LinkedIn. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> Boom. So true. And they totally... They, they totally sniffed me out. I'm on LinkedIn. They're like, what are you doing on here? Get back over to Facebook. <laughs> they can just smell it. You're not successful enough to be one of us. No, I'm just messing. <laughs> I have no idea where I was going with that. <laughs> we, the power that's in unfriending people. 
God is saying, no, the enemy's robbing you blind. Stop unfriending each other. Stop unfollowing each other. Stop not putting up with each other and stop shutting up under the guise of being so humble that you don't want to admit that it's rubbing you the wrong way. Because the Lord wants to show us that through this weapon of forbearing, new places in the relationship can happen, guys. When we speak the truth in love to each other and say, I'm, I'm sharing this because, not because I dislike you, not because I reject you, not because I'm saying goodbye to you, but because I want to continue to grow and be one body together. But I'm struggling a little bit because of this or this or this. Can, is that okay? And I'm telling you what, guys, I believe God has a plan for that. And if we learn to do it, guys, it will, sabot- it will stop the enemy's plan to rip us apart and allow us to move forward in deeper and deeper community and trust and relationship together. If you need more information on that, Matthew 18 has some more details on specifically confronting. It kind of goes through a little bit of a biblical pattern on that. Um, and so maybe if you're in a place where you need more right now, instruction on that, look up Matthew 18 on your own, and, and you can do that. Um, the second um, weapon is forgiving. At the end of that chapter in, in uh, Ephesians 4, verse 32, the very last verse, Paul ends up with this phrase, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. And this is God's weapon, by the way, for us when others don't just, you know, rub us the wrong way. This is God's weapon for when others do us the wrong way. There's a difference, right? You agree? One thing is just like, a, I just, I don't like that person's way of being or talking or thinking or whatever. But there's a difference when it's like somebody did me wrong. And, you know, it's hard because even to speak on this issue, man, just like Dan said a moment ago, like we recognize there's so many different kinds of hurts and things to forgive in this room. Everything from... I didn't get invited to a, you know, jewelry party to my spouse offended our son or daughter and they're not talking to us right now. We don't see the grandkids as much to I was raped or abused or, I mean, so please know I approach this or with humility, but that God is not in any way minimizing. In fact, I put that in your notes that, you know, forgiveness is not denying the pain. It's not saying it wasn't hurtful. It's not saying it wasn't evil. It's not saying God wasn't grieved. It's not saying that person's not guilty of something. Um, That's not what God is asking of us as we forgive. And so just know, again, our prayer for you is that you hear this through the filter of God's Holy Spirit massaging His truth, His hope into your heart in a way that only he can. I can't obviously speak, you know, to everybody's hurts and all the gamut of it, but, but I do believe with all my heart that what God has in his word works, that the truth of his word can set us free, that it's not making light of our pain or denying it, but that truly it's a path to freedom. And so let's talk about that for a second. Martin Luther King Jr. said, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It's a consistent or constant attitude. Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a constant attitude. And definitely he modeled that in his life of just living, you know, under situations of prejudice and abuse and, and disgraceful behavior towards him. And obviously his, his, his uh, people group and, and, uh, uh, is an inspiration to us. But I wanted to ask for your response on this question as well. What makes forgiving others so hard? What makes forgiving? We talked about what makes forbearing difficult. Maybe this is a little bit of a deeper question, but if you would be so vulnerable with us, and hey, it's just us here, we're family, and God has taken us to new places together, right? As we share, as we chew on his word. Do you know that? God is wanting to take us to new places, even in how, not just in the truths that he reveals to us, but even in how we come to those truths. Do you realize that? Like the traditional approach is, hey, the pastors pray all week, they study, they come, they got all the answers, boom, listen, take notes, go chew on it. I believe that God's pushing the envelope even on how we as his sons and daughters, as a church body, how we dig into his word together. And part of that is the interaction. And so, um, anyway, so I'm asking you, what makes it so difficult to forgive? Okay, how so? How does our flesh 
How dare they? How dare they hurt me like that? Yeah, we let our flesh take over. We're more aware of, obviously, the pain we're feeling, the anger we're feeling versus what God is leading our heart to do. That's great. Thank you, Jackie. What, somebody else, what, what makes it so difficult to forgive? Yes, Kim. We what? Great, it requires great humility. How, how do you see humility playing into this process of forgiving? Humbling yourself before that person. Being able to say, I forgive you. Oh, yeah. Somebody else. Wanting to be vindicated. Wanting to see them suffer. Maybe like they've made us suffer. Absolutely. Sorry. Adrian, were you going to say something? Maybe admitting we were wrong is hard sometimes. Maybe that we had a part in it, so it's just easier to avoid it altogether. Back in the back, yeah. Daniel. It's very personal. It strikes a chord. It's very close to home. When someone hurts us like that, and to forgive is just, yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah. Jed. Okay, self-preservation. Wow, yeah. That's so powerful. Such a reality, isn't it? Self-preservation. We put up walls. I'm not going to be hurt that way again. You know, hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. It ain't going to happen. That's great, Jed. Yeah, John. We just don't want to. Yeah, want to stew it. It feels good in a sense just to dig our heels in and be like, no, I am not backing down from this. They hurt me, and I will not forgive them. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, Rachel. Huge. That person isn't asking for our forgiveness. Big one. Yeah, choosing forgiveness, even if, I would say, even if reconciliation hasn't happened, right? Our pastor John Leitz from Jubilee would always say, forgiveness is a one-party issue. Reconciliation is a two-party issue. So certainly to reconcile the relationship requires two people being willing to humble themselves. But right now we're talking about the other side of that coin, which is forgiveness, what happens in our heart. Anybody else? Hmm. Sometimes the damage is permanent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, 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 we don't see how this can be made right. And it's like, how can I forgive if they've ruined my life in some way or my future? Whatever. Mm -hmm. The emotional... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's exhausting, Jameson said, because we're fighting with our flesh. I mean, David talked about that. I wrestle with my thoughts every day. You know what I mean? Why, God? Why did you allow this? Why, you know, and it's just that wrestling that it's exhausting. You're right, Jameson, versus like just letting go. Like, I'll just stew in the anger and hatred of it or, you know, unforgiveness. It's true, isn't it? Um, Two words that forgiveness means, um, and there may be more, but, but two that I wanted to highlight in the New Testament. The first one is, it means to extend grace or to freely pardon. To extend grace, it actually comes from the word charis, which is grace, or to freely pardon. And I think it's interesting because it's a paradigm check. If you think about that word, extending grace, it calls me to go, what is my center? We're talking about God-centered living, Right? But now this is saying extending grace. Why? Because in that verse that we read, verse 32, it says, forgive as God in Christ forgave you. So it's taking it back to, here's the center. God has forgiven us. Now from that place, now we move towards, now we extend that grace that we've received and forgive others. But if God's not the center, if the center is, I have been hurt and offended and wronged, 
And how are they going to pay for that? And they need to make this right. Do you see the difference there? It really can be, perhaps, if we're challenging, uh, if we're struggling with forgiveness and haven't found a way to break through in that area, maybe God is saying to us tonight, hey, maybe there's a place where you need to say, Lord, I reestablish you at the center of my heart. Let's start there. Let's start with, I've been forgiven in Christ. And then let's work outward from that place with you at the very center of my relationships and the very center of my life. And I believe there's great power in that. Um, Janelle brought up in our teaching team, Matthew 10, verse eight, says, freely you have received, freely give, right? It's that idea of, man, when we start putting our eyes on Jesus and putting him at the center, seeing how freely we've received forgiveness, we can forgive. Now, I wanna talk about how to forgive because this is where it gets sticky, right? How do we actually see this happen in our lives? And I, I put together just a real quick ABC of forgiveness, okay? That hopefully helps us remember it. ABCs of forgiveness. The A, I believe, the first thing that you can do if you're, and obviously you're probably thinking already of a situation in your life, maybe right now, where you know that you've been locked in unforgiveness. Um, but I believe that what God is gonna give you power to do even right now is to take this first step. And A is to acknowledge and accept God's payment for the debt. Acknowledge and accept God's payment for the debt. And here is uh, an example of that. Let's say that your home is, has a $200,000 mortgage and you lose your job, your spouse loses their job, your kids, you know, babysitting money and McDonald's income can't support, you know, the mortgage, whatever. So you're getting ready to foreclose on the house. You're going to lose the house. And so the mortgage lender calls you in for a meeting and in the process says, you know what? I don't know, you must have friends that are very kind and very generous because somebody else came in this week, gave us a call and said, you know what? We're actually going to cover that $200,000 for them. We're going to pay that mortgage in full. It's completely paid. And you're like, wow, that is so awesome. So can you imagine? You're like, what am I going to do with all that money now? Well, not a whole lot of money because, you know, you lost your jobs. But hopefully you'll get new jobs. Anyway, okay, I digress. But, you know, it's been paid in full by a different source from a different source. Now, here's the incredible thing. In forgiving us and in leading us and inviting us to forgive others, God is not just showing mercy. Get this. God is being just. I owe some of this to my son, Caleb. He just brought this up for whatever reason in a conversation. And I was like, what? Because I just thought God was like, okay, fine. I'm going to be nice now. Everybody's forgiven, you know? No, God, in God, as Psalms say that righteousness and peace have kissed. What is it? Right, justice and mercy have come together, something like that. Because in God, in Jesus, the justice of God that must punish sin, there's gotta be punishment for it. The penalty for sin is death. There is no way around it. And we were all included in that boat, every single one of us. We were separated by nature from God and objects of wrath. But Christ came to show us the mercy of God. He took the payment. He paid it in full. Now, if that mortgage lender turned around and said, well, your mortgage has been paid in full, congratulations. So all you have to pay now is 20,000. I mean, you know, hey, I gave you a break on 90% of it. You know, somebody else paid 200,000. Why don't you just pay me 20,000 and we'll call it even. What would you say? What would you say, Alan? You'd be like, no way. It's been paid in full, 200 grand. I'm not paying you an extra 20 from my budget. That's not just. That's not righteous. That's corruption. What we're doing when we're not forgiving someone else is we're actually wanting to extort from them a payment back towards us for the pain they caused us. When Jesus says, you know what? I came and I laid down my life and I paid in full. I paid in full. Isaiah chapter 53 says this, and I didn't put it in the notes, but I'll read it to you. It's talking about Jesus, the suffering servant, and it says these words in verses four through six. It says, Surely he, meaning Jesus, took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord, listen to this, the Lord, the righteous judge, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's basically telling us there that God chose to crush Jesus because he laid on him your sin and my sin. And guess what? The sin of that person that hurt you and that hurt me. He laid their sin on himself as well. And he is saying, hey, I paid for it. Will you accept my form of payment? And I'm telling you what, God is inviting us saying, please do. Because when you accept my form of payment, saying, okay, I'm not gonna make them pay me back. I'm accepting Jesus' death on the cross as my payment for that sin, just like the Father is, because he accepts Jesus' death as payment. We're joining, we're aligning with the Father. That's a good place to be, by the way. Because <laughs> he makes good on his promises. And that leads us to the second thing, the B of what to do in forgiveness is that we've got to believe in God's process and in his power to heal. When we do the first one, when we align, accept, and acknowledge Jesus' full payment and acknowledge God, you're actually being righteous and just and merciful in forgiving them and in calling me to forgive them because you've paid it all, Jesus. But God, I'm still hurt. God, this is still hard. I still got some destruction in here that, that I need help with. I can't fix this. And if they're not gonna fix it, if I'm not gonna hold them, you gotta come fix this because you did this. Then Lord, I'm looking to you. Would you come heal my heart? And when we do that, church, I'm telling you what, you're putting yourself in a very, very good place. When you're saying, Lord, fine, I will acknowledge and accept your payment of it. So that's done, that's free, I release. But now God, I ask you to come and heal my heart. God, come and do what they could never do. Even if they tried to come begging and pleading and trying to make it right, they would never be able to heal you the way that Jesus can heal you. So believe in his process. The third one is a C, which is choose to release them. We can choose to say, okay, Lord, I choose to release that person. Man, I'm not gonna hold this over them anymore. I'm going to release them. And when we do that, there's a quote that says this, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner was us. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner was us by Lewis Smedes. You know, God is wanting us to be free. He's wanting us to, to walk in victory together in community. But it's only as we put into practice forgiving on a regular basis, it's only as we understand the power of it. I'm telling you what, Jesus is not calling us to be wounded doormats the rest of our life. And obviously there's other entire messages that can be preached on boundaries. And, you know, I'm not advocating limitless abuse, you know, anything like that. But, but this is a heart condition, right? This is a, a willingness to forgive, even if there's consequences and even if there have to be some things that change and so forth. But at the heart level, we're accepting Jesus' payment in full. We're believing in his power to heal our hearts and we're choosing to release that person. You know, in um, the book of Leviticus, I've always wanted to quote Leviticus in a message. <laughs> it's kind of a dare. I think Dan owes me 20 bucks because he's like, you'll never be able to preach anything from Leviticus. But in chapter 16, there is an explanation of a ritual that is somewhat mysterious. And it happened on the day of Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, the day of atonement. And so God was describing to him, you know, Aaron, you go and you take a, a bull and sacrifice it for your own sins before you get ready to go into the Holy of Holies once a year, remember? And so he did that. Then he says, take two goats. And I put in, in, in the notes, well, those of you following on, on Bible app or version, uh, what do two goats out in the desert have to do with forgiveness, right? It's not what you think. I don't know what you think. <laughs> but he said, take two goats. He said, one of them you are going to sacrifice and kill and offer to the Lord as a burnt offering for the sins of the people. Now, who is our sacrifice for the sins of the people, your sins and mine? Jesus is the Lamb of God, isn't he? He's the Lamb of God. He's our perfect sacrifice who took our sin and was sacrificed and died for the price and the penalty of our sin and the sins committed against us that we are called to forgive. But here's the thing. The other goat, he says, now take the other goat. By the way, they were chosen by lot, you know, by, by like dice. So you imagine both of the goats are like trembling. <laughs> Please, seven, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I choose black. I don't know. I'm not a big casino person, but 
<laughs> but they're trembling, waiting for the dice to stop rolling. <laughs> Is it odds or evens? Okay, so the, the one that God chose was sacrificed. But the other one, it said Aaron laid his hands on him and spoke over him all the sins of the people. Said, right now I'm loading you down with all the sins that have been committed by all of God's people. And then something very interesting happened. Somebody was commissioned to take that goat, and instead of sacrificing him, they would take him out in the wilderness and then release him to go free. Isn't that interesting? They would send the goat away carrying the sins of all the people. I just think it's so awesome that God gives us a picture of, I think, two sides of forgiveness. That a price has been paid, and Jesus was that lamb who died for that grievous offense that was committed against you that he's calling you to forgive. But then he also shows us that there's another side of that that is there's another goat that was sent away and still carried part of that but was removed from the, the view of the people, never to be seen or heard from again. And Jesus is both goats in this situation, right? He also cares, daily bears our burdens. He also says, hey, lay that on me. Lay that hurt on me. I get it. I, I, you're feeling it. I, I'll feel it with you. I'm not denying your pain, but I'm going to be that other one that bears the sins of the people. And in fact, the second word in Greek for forgive, check this out, it means to be sent away, to release. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so I wonder if there's some sort of tie-in, I don't know, to Leviticus 16, but when they would send that second goat away and just release it, you know what? <sighs> I don't have to worry about that anymore. That goat's gone. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to dwell on it. Someone said, if you can't forgive and forget, pick one. Pretty good advice, right? If you can't forgive and forget, pick one and do it. So here's the thing, guys. I'm going to close with this. Two weapons, forbear and forgive. Two incredible realities that can be operating in our life. But we're only, I believe, going to be really good at using them and learning how to walk in them regularly if we understand the big win for God when we hear and follow his calling. Because in the book of Ephesians, in the letter to the Ephesian church, Paul is, is writing to them and he tells them this. You, you know, the, in the first verse that I read, it said, hey, uh, as a prisoner of the Lord then, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. But what is that calling? Well, I believe that if you look back at the prior chapter, chapter three, in verses four through six and eight through 11, it says this. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight, Paul speaking, into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery uses that word again. This mystery is that through the gospel, are you ready for this? Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members together, say together, of one body. Say one body. Okay? And shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, there's that word again, he's making this big thing like, this is a big deal. This is something that nobody understood. And right now, God is like, ta-da, this is my big plan. Woohoo! <laughs> Check this out. To make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. See, God was saying, Gentiles over here, all the non-Jewish nations, and Jews over here, the two shall never meet, right? This is for, for generations. It had been like the whole point of being a Jew was like, ooh, don't associate with those people. And the whole point of being a Gentile was like, oh, well, I don't know, those people are kind of weird, you know, whatever. God took two things that were so different and said, I'm making one body out of them. God tackled the biggest difference in Paul's day. He didn't start with some little teeny thing and start working his way up. He was like, I'm going to take the biggest racial issue of this day and I'm going to tackle it head on. We're facing some racial tensions in our day, some, some all kinds of craziness of people feeling hurt and offended and, and 
prejudiced and vice versa and all kinds of stuff. It's a mess, isn't it? But God is saying, I want to speak right to that and have my church be a place where people who are so different are able to come together in one body because they forbear one another, because they even speak up sometimes. Maybe they shut up sometimes. And even then when they grieve one another and hurt one another deeply, they forgive one another. And I'm using this church, this community that I'm creating, one body, one faith, one Father, one Lord. I'm using this to show all the principalities and powers, all the demon hordes out there. They're like, what in the world? You can't do that. And God's like, yes, I can't. Well, I don't know if he's, I don't know if God actually has a southern accent, but <laughs> go with me. <laughs> we all know from the Ten Commandments, he has an echo to when he says stuff. So it's like, my son, my son, Moses, Moses, you know. But the point being, he says, man, I'm going to make a, you know, a big deal here so that principalities and powers in a global sense can see that only God could have done this. Only God can make one body out of these crazy different things. How much more, church, can God bring us together right here at Shine Church with our differences and allow us to forbear, to forgive, and to truly experience his victory together? So here's our question. Will we choose to retreat into isolation and choose the comfort of that and the safety, which really isn't safety at all because that sets us up for the enemy's ambush? Or are we going to choose to trust him and say, Lord, I believe your way is better. It might be awkward. It might be crazy. It might be weird. I don't know. I, this is new to me. But Lord, here I am. Lord, I want to forbear. I want to forgive. I want to grow together into that one body that you're putting together, that great mystery that brings great glory to you. It's not just a win for us because victories come when we step into that. Revelation comes, protection comes, security. And I mean, God, so many wins for us. But God ultimately gets the greatest win when he can look and say, I did that. Look at my people, look at my bride. They've come together. They're honoring and trusting me. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word, God. Thank you for your invitation and your calling into this one new people that you are putting together with all of our differences, all of our quirks, all of our personalities, all of our different ways of looking at you and each other and life, all of our prophet, priest, or king mindsets, perhaps, all those different things, God. You're doing something new. And we want to say, God, yes. Yes, Lord. We let you into that place in our hearts where we truly put you at the center. We trust you. Make us yours. Let us walk in something so unbelievably miraculous that you're doing, that the world takes notice because we love one another. Do it in us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.